Good afternoon. Uh, we are ready for this afternoon's panel, which will be on classical and Renaissance art, uh, essentially. Uh, we have several participants. The first one we already heard this morning, uh, Georges Didier Huberman, who is a philosopher and art historian, and he teaches at the École des Hautes Études et Sciences Sociales. He's the, the author of several books, just to mention a few. Images in Spite of All, Four Photographs from Auschwitz, Confronting Images, Questioning the Ends of Certain History of Art. And this is just a sampler. You have more in the description. Uh, the next uh, member of this panel is Thomas da Costa Kaufmann. And um, um, Dr. Kaufmann is uh, Frederick Marquand Professor of Art and Archaeology at Princeton University. Uh, he's authored several books also, and again, the list is in the leaflet, but I can just mention a couple. Archimboldo, Visual Jokes, Natural History, and Still Life Paintings. Uh, Painterly Enlightenment, The Art of Franz Anton Maulberch. Um, the next uh, member of the panel is François Kivigé, and he uh, is actually um, curator of digital resources and librarian and researcher at the Warburg Institute in London, and we owe to him the nice uh, iconography that uh, we have for the uh, current workshop. He has written recently a book on the sensory world of Italian Renaissance art. Um, the other member of the panel is Dorothea Rockburn, She's an artist who works with both industrial and natural materials, paintings, uh, and she cuts, draws, folds, and calculates to create complex works of art built upon mathematical foundations. She has, been, uh, she has had several exhibits, and actually, currently, she has uh, an exhibit at the MoMA until January 20th uh, uh, on drawing which makes uh, itself. And the uh, last member uh, of the panel is uh, Christopher Wood, who is a professor at Yale since 1992. He's a currently visiting professor in the German department of NYU. He has taught as a visiting uh, scholar at different universities. And uh, <clears throat> he's author of several books, including Albrecht Ardolfer and the Origins of Landscape, Forgery, Replica, Fiction, Temporalities of German Renaissance Art, among other books. So. Uh, I just have another announcement to make that um, actually Ed uh, mentioned. Uh, there is uh, here in the, uh, as a, a participant to the workshop, uh, Eric Breitbart, and he has uh, actually uh, made a documentary on Abi Warburg entitled Abi Warburg Archives of Memory. It lasts, I think, 27 minutes, if I, uh, to be precise. And so those of you who are interested in uh, uh, watching it, uh, we could actually have it after the roundtable, uh, have a look at this uh, uh, documentary. So I actually think it's a good idea to stay on for another half hour. So have uh, the panel, and uh, I don't know who will start. Ed, your lecture ceremony. I can start by asking yeah, a, a question, perhaps. Well, uh, <clears throat> Listening to this uh, this morning, some, someone told me that not much has been spoken about Warburg, but really about what he opened and, and his, his method. And when I open my computer now, I see hundreds and thousands of images. And the problem is um, how to make sense of these images. So really, my first question would be to Georges Didier Berman. What is the relevance of Warburg to the current practice of iconography? Because 
Indeed, in his time, Warburg was accumulating his collection for his own purpose. Now we can log into an image database like Art Store, to, to take a very obvious example, which has 1.5 million images. And it's, it's really a sign of the internet, this kind of overwhelming quantity of images, which increasingly demand from us scholars an ability to make sense of that, that mass of, of data. So, Georges, maybe you, you, you'd like to start by pointing out what would be the kind of relevance of uh, Warburg's method to the, to the current state of, uh, of the practice of looking at images it's and interpreting? A, it's a big question. Um, let us say first that in the beloved Warburg Institute, um, there are two, two things. One is the, um, the photo library, which is very big. And the, the, the other is Mnemosyne Atlas. You spoke about hundreds of thousands of images. And in the Mnemosyne Atlas, there is only 1,000 image, so to speak. Uh, therefore, I think that the question of databases, the hundreds of millions of billions of images you are dealing with as a librarian, as an archivist, as a, is one thing. The other thing is to make an atlas. I mean, there is a, a crucial and uh, conceptual difference between an ar archive and atlas. Archive is a tool. Atlas is uh, a work. It's a decision. It's an act of interpretation. <coughs> and uh, um, I would say that the, I am more interested, I use, thanks to you <laughs> and other. I use archives, but my aim, my work, is directed towards atlas. That is to say, to make a decision, to make a montage, an editing, a proper editing, to make sense with the relation of uh, two images, three, four, 14, 1,000, why not more? But uh, this is a complete difference very big difference that to, to organize an archive, a database, and to make an atlas. Absolutely. So the question really is how to make an atlas out of that proliferation of, of images. What kind of method? For instance, this morning there was a discussion about aesthetic art, etc. If you look at the way 16th century people look at images, they don't think of art. If you look, for instance, at uh, records of iconoclasm, people attack images in general, whether they're on their painting, whether they're on liturgical utensils, etc. So I was wondering whether precisely that proliferation of images, that, that accessibility, force us to think outside these these categories of aesthetic experience and think rather in terms of, of response to, uh, to images. Uh, you, you want well, to, to say something? On that? <laughs> <laughs> On Siri? <laughs> what is the question? <laughs> What is the question? What do you do when you, you're trying to make a point about the Renaissance and instead of having, you know, 
100 <coughs> small reproduction, you have 10,000 images. When you're looking for Mercury, instead of having, you know, six photocopies mm. and three books, so you have... Um, how does the quantity affect the art-non-art distinction? It seemed to me that in the 19th century, with a, with a, with a, with a much smaller database, and that's what Georges was saying, uh, Warburg and many others, he wasn't the only one, were perfectly capable of uh, distinguishing be between works that had been, or let's say images that had been institutionalized as artworks and functioned within some kind of art system and those that weren't. So are you suggesting somehow that it's the, qu it's the quantity of images today that's available that blurs the, the distinction? Or perhaps that calls for different approaches to, uh, to images. For instance, if I search for uh, Mercury in the Warburg iconographic database, <coughs> I won't only find images by by famous painters, mm. I would find Mercury's and, you know, beer mugs and... Uh, well, if you search on Google, you, you might do better. Yeah, possibly. But what I mean is that with these instruments, you can see images in a far right. broader context than you could uh, earlier, and perhaps think more in terms <coughs> of responses to images than in the kind of uh, rather basic semiology that is implicit in the iconographic method. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Foucault, Foucault said, to know is to cut. So um, uh, I didn't answer exactly your questions because your question was, what do you do now? Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, is yeah. not a round table about Renaissance, <laughs> it's about now, but why not? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, now um, uh, I can just uh, speak of uh, an experience I did. I organized uh, an exhibition at the uh, Reina Sofia Museum about atlases of images. So for my own stake, I did on my own personal uh, sca scanner uh, 20,000 scans. And of course the exhibition was uh, a cut in this, it was a choice. But what is interesting is the choice, it's not my archive, which is uh, 20,000 images, is, is uh, today nothing. But th this is important, this is the, it is the choice. So, but what, what you're saying is that you're, you're making an atlas rather than a, than a straightforward paper, and perhaps that would be an approach. But well, I, I just want to pick up on what you said, because uh, I want to ask a more general question. Um, this idea of knowing is cutting, which is related, I think, to what you were saying about uh, pensée traverse, some idea like that. Well, um, and I think it picks up from what I heard what David was suggesting about how interest in Warburg had changed. And, um, you know, if one thinks, uh, as uh, Christopher said quite well, that this was an esoteric interest. Warburg was very esoteric, and now, as you put quite nicely, it's become exoteric. And uh, why we're all here, hearing about this person, when in a way uh, you would have had to have been a kind of querdenker. Kind of. You'd have to a querdenker, as the Germans say or the Austrians say, you, that you, in order to, as as you were. I mean, you were interested in this uh, in, in Warburg uh, 30 years ago, but not everybody was. And uh, unless you had been at the Warburg Institute or thought about the history of the classical tradition, this would not have had the kind of resonance, broad resonance that it does. Now, you gave a good explanation about why this, uh, you know, why this particular person cuts across many fields and why there are many ideas, but why 
My question is even related, if we're going to talk about now, why independent of Renaissance or classical or whatever we're supposed to be talking about directly here, does this have uh, four, four panels and could have many more? I mean, why, why is Warburg suddenly resonating? Is it just that he's been translated into various <coughs> languages? Or is there more to it? I don't know if... Uh, a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could, could, could I, yes. I, I'm sorry to go ahead, but I'm yes. try to frame the, an answer in terms of the Renaissance, yes. actually, because um, um, I mean, it does seem to me that it's significant in the late 19th century, and he's not alone in this regard, he's, he's following in Burkhardt's path, uh, but that he's framing the, the self-understanding of modernity. Warburg is attempting to, to frame the self-understanding of modernity in terms of the Renaissance. And the, the question here that I'm trying to put forward is what, what was his theory of history? What did he think the role of modernity was? And there's an, there's an alternative uh, to framing the modern experience, or let's say dating the initiation of the modern experience to the Renaissance. And that's, um, and that's uh, focusing on Romanticism. That was the that was the alternative. That's the absent in Warburg. He, w he was not a romantic thinker. He, and this is related, I think, to his uh, unwillingness to engage with the problem of the subject, subjectivity. It's romanticism, right? I'm talking about the heart of German romanticism, 1800, that puts the subject right, at the center and proposes the subject as the kind of um, you know, ir irreplaceable foundation for uh, for, for, for private and collective experience. And he's rejecting that. And instead, re-embracing an older theory of history, which proposes that it's the dialogue with the past, with the ancient past, an anguished dialogue with the ancient past, which uh, essentially guides our path. And he sees, I think, and Panofsky and Kassirer and others who followed him uh, agree with this. They see the period from the Quattrocento to 1800, so the, the 15th century to the 18th century, as essentially um, a kind of, um, well, this was a kind of uh, a, a period without significant internal development. It was a, it was a period when um, the humanistic project kind of found its bearings, maintained its bearings, and then it was disrupted again by Romanticism. And it's that disruption that he's contesting. He's, he's trying to reestablish against, I would say, the, the, all the currents of his time, reestablish the, 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 what we now call the early modern period as, um, as the matrix, let's say, of modern. So what I would want to ask even those who framed the conference is what, is what aspects of Warburg's concept of modernity and modern experience are presumably being found attractive again? Well, if I can give perhaps an immediate reaction. Uh, in my view, one, one of the interesting things of Warburg is his use of uh, neuroscience. And when I, when I studied the 16th century, I found looking at art, you have to look at how the brain works. And if you start to look at the 16th century discourse on the brain, that's essentially Aristotle. And it's, it's kind of naive and anachronistic to, uh, to think that because they thought through Aristotle, you have to read Aristotle to understand their, 
their thinking. So at least from my point of view, what Warburg would, would point towards is to use to take the responsibility of the present and to understand that the brain functions in a certain way and then to look out for manifestation of this functioning outside the realm of science, which in the 16th century doesn't really encompass as much brain activity as, uh, as neuroscience does. I mean, you can see that at the very, very obvious basic level if you open a university manual for doctors. The, the, the concept of five senses has, has stopped existing for a long time, so you have to think perhaps in terms of, uh, of postural sensors, of uh, alloception, etc., etc. So what I find is that it really opens art history or the history of images to the full function of the brain and the brain as produ producing, producing or productive of, of culture. I mean, from my point of view, that, that, that would be the, the, the most interesting interesting side. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it could be also <coughs> said that uh, it's remarkable how um, there is a kind of mirror effect <coughs> between the object and the method. I mean, many of great art historians uh, were reborn as art historians because they studied Renaissance. Uh, Wölfli, Warbo, Panofsky, uh, <coughs> Robert Klein, Chastel, you, you, you. So you uh, redefine your own practice as an art historian, finding in a Renaissance, which is so rich, so. Uh, a new way of damage, of course. Mm. Uh, and it's, uh, it's this correspondence between the object you study and the, the, the process as a, as a searcher, a thinker, a historian, is uh, also in the study of images. What Warburg said mostly about images uh, is that they were um, subject to processes of Wanderungen, migrations, like a stamp. It's wonderful a stamp because it's an image which can go from a country with the enemy country crossing the border. You can uh, write to your friend from Germany to Italy during the First World War. This yeah. is the magic of images. And it involved the thinking of images as possibility of crossing the borders. It's the reason I, I was interested in these topics. I, I, I um, agree with you about the importance of the notion of Wanderungen. And I would say, to answer your question about the modernity here, that that is certainly something in which Warburg was responding to his uh, own time. I mean, not only posted stamps, but also the other metaphors. I mean, just like we're, we're using these metaphors of uh, territoriality, which of course is interest, uh, territoriality, crossing borders, the border guards, this kind of thing. But also, um, he does write about, um, he pays attention to submarines and airplanes. And he refers to um, uh, tapestries as the vehicles or the 
well, Fahrzeuge, which could be yeah. cars, uh, automobiles, which, uh, by which uh, images, images pass from one place to another. So it's not only the, that images wander, it's also the, the vehicles or the means <coughs> by which, or the media, and as we'd say now, by which they wander, including prints. So he talks about the importance of prints and also um, so-called decorative arts, I mean, small objects which were passed and which also carry images on them. So there's something about that which is very uh, uh, modern in that sense, or would point to the notion of modernity being also the invention of newer media or newer vehicles for the transmission of images, not just that they are transmitted or that they exist, or that there's some psychic reason why they're picked up, but how they are. And that would be, I mean, that is one reason why it would be of interest, uh, you know, to me. I mean, what, where one goes from that rather than recognizing, ah, you already thought about these things. Of course, it goes back to what I, um, you know, to the question that I was asking initially, which is why, uh, you know, why is he now of interest? And why wasn't he of interest? Because with all of this, the history of the classical tradition, and one thing that one must say, and that you would be very well aware, as you mentioned Chastel and all, all the rest, that the history, of, if one talks about the Renaissance, that the history of the classical tradition and his interest in it was something that was passed on and was regarded as important. But all of these other kinds of notions of how one would develop a broader conception, uh, 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 not only in terms of opening up to other disciplines, opening up to neuroscience or whatever it might be, but thinking about notions of the Renaissance or cultural transmission as being something that was broader than in one place, broader than Italy, than Florence's, was something that was, you could almost say, if you were to experience it, suppressed in France. You too, you too, you too. Yeah, uh, wherever. So, I mean, uh, I, so that's interesting that that comes back. So maybe as a model, it's important. And uh, certainly the modernity, I don't know if Christopher agrees with this or not, is part of that uh, aspect of things. And that's something that also just makes him a person of the 20th century, at least as late 19th, as opposed to the early 19th. Except that today it would yeah. be hard to find uh, <coughs> voices among his more progressive yeah. adherents who still consider the engagement with antiquity to be the fundamental. So there's a sense yeah, of there's true. been a translation involved. Yeah, that's true. There's been a translation involved. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Right, that 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 the Warburg didn't think anything of the Middle Ages. You know, he okay. said it again and again. He said that they were, you know, he had what would would now be unacceptable. He had what would now be an unacceptable view of the Middle Ages, namely that it was a period of kind of obscurantism, uh, you know, uh, limitation, uh, spiritual blindness that was waiting its emancipation. He's, he speaks openly in those terms. And the Renaissance for him was a heroic liberation of the human will. Kassira will pick up on this later. Remember, this is completely, I mean, it's relatively new. It's, I mean, the, 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 re the term Renaissance was coined only by Michelet, you know, only, um, you know, less than 20 years, really about 10 years before Warburg was born, okay? Before then, no one talked about the Renaissance. Uh, and then Burkhardt's, you know, uh, just a few years after that, produces his book. This launches the concept of the Renaissance, which by now is a, is, a, is a cliche. So Warburg, it still feels fresh, I think, in the late 1880s to go to Florence and to identify the Quattrocento as the matrix of the modern, of the modern experience. But that had to do with this uh, relationship to antiquity, right? 
Uh, and then, as George was saying eloquently, how it's striking how art history as a discipline has allowed itself to be guided by the project of the Renaissance itself. Panofsky said this explicitly. He just said that what it means to be a historian is to, uh, is to inhabit two time frames at once and, to, uh, and, to, uh, and then to have them doubled. So that when he, he says the humanists already, the, the humanists in reviving antiquity already, already predicting Panofsky, who then studies the Renaissance, which, so there's this kind of recursive process, this kind of infinite regress, where by each generation, identifies a, 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 a revivalist moment in a previous generation, so forth, on and on backwards. And this, this sense of a kind of specular notion of history always reflecting itself, repeating itself, maybe this is close to your transversals. Uh, this, I mean, you know, this is, this, is, this is Warburg's Renaissance. To what extent is that still alive today? I would say that the Warburg literature is split, I mean, on the whole, it's split between those who for whom Warburg, the anachronist, the survivalist, the Warburg, the teller of ghost stories, and so forth, is still the fundamental one, and those who think that it's about neuroscience. So to that extent, I see this panel as potentially a kind of space of, um, you know, I don't know if resistance is too strong, but let's say a pause in the, what seems to be the overall agenda of the conference, but maybe I'm wrong about that. But one thing that you, <coughs> you don't really bring up is that the Renaissance artists themselves were involved in antiquity. They were involved in reading ancient writings. There was a sort of a flow from ancient Greece to Italy. It was kind of underground at that time, but it was big. And it shows up in the Scrivini Chapel, uh, the, the Giotto, uh, small, corner, uh, small figures in the corner that are mm -hmm. black and white, or mm -hmm. uh, figures from antiquity. Uh, and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I apologize because I was late this morning, so I missed some of um, the discussions. Uh, but I had a fascinating lunch with my friends uh, of uh, Ginebra. And um, one thing I can say is Something we, uh, as art historians, we share with psychoanalysts is uh, both um, the fact that f for a psychoanalyst, an image is not here or there, it passes through. The second thing is about the uses of past. Past is not somewhere, past is, depends on the use we have of the past. So, in, um, it's interesting that the Renaissance is precisely a period in which two models of the uses of the past were uh, developed. One is the nationalist one, so to speak, Vasari. Renaissance equals uh, Tuscany, that's all. Uh, then there is the alternative, the movement, Van der Rungen the work of Thomas, for example. So, um, it's about the uses of the past. Some weeks ago, I was in a a Athens, in Greece. I went to the muse archaeological museum. There was a bowl of 8th century uh, before Christ with a beautiful swastika. Okay. 
it's a motif. It's linked to the motif we call Greek. Okay. Now, what happens? I went out of the museum and I was able to observe the work of, I don't know in English, Lobe Doré, this Nazi party, which is extremely efficient now in Greece and which uses the svastika and the Greek motive and the svastika as a, a nationalist uh, uh, discourse. And I uh, met some poets or um, filmmakers, very, very modern, who use the past in a completely different way. So this is a question of use value. It's not a question of uh, uh, Renaissance is not... It, the Renaissance is exactly what we do with this. No? It's very simple. That's what not what Warburg thought. Because I believe Warburg uh, thought that the past bore down on us. That yeah. the past uh, yeah. governed us in a way. We were not... We, yeah. There were limits yeah, yeah. on our freedom to use yeah, the yeah. past. Yeah. But uh, Warburg is not the god. Uh, we, ca we can also read Walter Benjamin <laughs> along with Warburg and make something <laughs> which works too. You agree? I agree. I uh, don't well, to think Warburg is God, but I mean no, around no. here he sounds yeah, like he is God a little bit. Uh, um, it's certainly not God in, in London, but one aspect that has, that has been, it, it tends to be referred in this uh, premise as an art historian, but I believe he defined himself as what he called a psycho-historian or historian of the psychology of humanity. So would you, would you see that one aspect of art history would be precisely to diagnose the tensions of humanity as recorded by, uh, by images? Of course. I mean, that seems to be... I, I'm not sure whether the historical sense is well developed in, in the disciplines of the body. I was fascinated um, by the fact that in the, before the Second World War, there is a, a, a kind of constellation of, of thinkers, uh, namely Karl Einstein, uh, Abi Warburg, Walter Benjamin, so on, uh, who place the image at the center of the question of history or even time, at the same moment they place the question of time at the center of the notion of image, just before the Second World War. What happened bef uh, after, it's quite different. But I am extremely impressed that uh, at this moment there was a kind of urgent emergency to think images through time and to think time through images. No? But don't you, you think that the, in order for the image to become a time traveler in the way Warburg uh, uh, describes it and you describe it, doesn't the image have to be de-psychologized? It, it has to leave the body, essentially. It has to be externalized and, 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 uh, and become a formula right? so that it can move freely. Right? And to that extent, it makes it a historical instrument but it also puts it beyond the reach of the, of the sciences of the body, it seems to me. 
therefore the interest to, to, look, to have a look to psychoanalysis, I mean meta-psychology, as a way of de-psychologize the, the, the structures of the... Yeah. Yes. Because psychoanalysis yeah. is a hermeneutic yeah. discipline. Of course, That's of right. course. You speak of science. You are laughing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because as an artist, so that's simply not how it works. <laughs> you know, it's overly intellectualized. It's, a, it's intellectual. Certainly being an artist is an intellectual pursuit and historical pursuit. But it's also visceral yeah. and sexual. And you're not, you're not talking about the juices. You're like refining it into language. And I'm missing you know, the guts of it. Because Barbour wasn't interested in art. He was interested in images and in history, but art for him had no meaning. He never spoke about it. I didn't know that. No, in well. fact, every time he, he always did it disparagingly. He said, oh, that's, 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 that's aesthetics, that's for you esthetes. I'm interested in images, and I'm interested in time, and, 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 and the past, and so forth. If you're speaking about images, though, and the Quattrocento, how can you separate art from Im images that doesn't exist? He did. He separated images from art. He said, I'm going to look at these as images. And whether they're works of art or, 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 or material culture, that doesn't interest me. The, 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 initial, the initial question that is asked is a historical question. But it's the answer given is a psychological one. And that may also affect the making of things. In other words, looking at things abstractly he would say, well, what is the reason for the development of this style? Which is what he said. That's what he says. This station is in the psychology of the style. Why is there a change? Not that there is a change, which we could recognize by looking at images or looking not involved in the process of making, but looking to sequence of images, saying, this is different from that. We see the nymph here and there. And then he looks and notes the nymph being there, and he gives a, an explanation, which is, and then that leads, that can lead into other directions. It doesn't necessarily, it, so it's not as a, whether it's art or not, it's, it's the phenomenon that he's still trying to describe, which he's, uh, which is responding, of course, perhaps to a particular moment, which described as being style. But you could call it something with else. The, with, you're dealing with Renaissance art, I mean, yes, culturally, but mm. I mean, there are only, there is only art to take images from, and, if you look, if, the, uh, if you spend any time in Siena or Assisi or uh, uh, Florence, <clears throat> you cannot help but observe how the work is made because they layered pigment. And with time, sometimes some pigment has peeled off and some has come through, a, you know, a green has come through a white or whatever. And all of that there's something about the making of the work, which the actual making makes the image. The image isn't there before the making. You're completely right, but that's not what Barbour believed. He wasn't interested in uh, fabrication, and he wasn't interested in creativity. But as a contemporary art historian who inherit from the past what, what to do with, with this would be the, the question, and if, if I may just make 
quick observation. You mentioned sciences of the body, I think referring to neuroscience. The little I've read of neuroscientific literature, I find it very exciting because it's a literature that points out what the Orientals knew very well long before the 20th century and what the West knew before Descartes, that is body and mind, they're, they're not two different entities, they're constantly interconnected. But I could name objects of, mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of study which are neither body nor mind, namely texts mm -hmm. or images. They're not body or mind, they're external. And I would propose that that's, th th those are the entities that I deal with. Not, mi not minds or bodies. But it depends what you call psychology. Uh, usually there is a big distinction between uh, Wölflin and Warburg, form formalists, iconologists. I think, and I look at uh, Andrea Pinotti, who knows very well these things, that the difference is not so big. I mean, when uh, Wölflin speaks about psychology, it's not at all a question of ego, uh, uh, what are my, my choices, what I love, my feelings. Uh, no, not at all. It's fundamental. It's a kind of anthropological psychology. It was the reason I, I was recalling the meta-psychology, the Freudian one. So this is very important to make the distinction. And uh, just uh, a quick answer to your question, to your difference between uh, intellectuals and uh, creative, or I don't know. Uh, I would say that Warburg was, as everybody, it was not only Warburg, but Warburg did very well. <laughs> he was working all the day and he was transforming things. He was constructing something, a library, yeah. writing, yeah. organization of images. He was making images. a work of art. Yes, <laughs> and <laughs> at, the end, at the end, one of the greatest painters of the 20th century, Gerhard Richter, took the, the, <coughs> the, the model from Warburg to make his own atlas. So there is no, no? He didn't know that. Peter was not aware, not directly. Even better, even better. <laughs> even better. Of course he knows. Yes, uh, I agree. Uh, I mean, there is knows. a, uh, there is a yeah. consistency which begins uh, in the 20s. Moholinaji did atlases, Le Corbusier did atlases, everybody. So. No, it's not a question. No, no, I don't mean maps. absence of religion 
don't forget that he was, it was already mentioned by our uh, friend from Los Angeles. He was an assimilated uh, family that kept Judaism at home. He refused to participate in it. Yeah. I must say that I was also a very good friend of his niece of uh, Ingrid Babu in Rome for four years. And I know these details very uh, intimately. And his attempt to, his fantasy was to reconstruct the correct human gesture, correct uh, cultural, cultivated way. And he believed innocently, you can say naively, that by coming to terms with the longest possible past, you can reconstruct the correct form for human life in the absence of religion, in the absence of collective identity with which you could identify. For him, there was no collectivity to identify. And that is the grand purpose of his art history. Very different, fundamentally different from Bukhart. <coughs> you're right. Developed his own psychology of style. First, if I appreciate your comments, and I can see that the uh, discussion has uh, been stimulating enough, and uh, you've been stimulated by it, but what I would prefer is you wait until the roundtable finishes their discussion, and then we open for comments and questions. Otherwise, if everybody starts jumping in, we'll have a problem. I also wanted to just remind you that this is about classical and Renaissance art. Uh, I, I, I wanted to come back to one thing that you were saying. Yes. Uh, that is, uh, if, uh, and indeed, I can't recall the exact places where he was taking things from, but if, if we were to go with him, to, with Warburg to Florence, we would have not only been looking at, you know, the Peruzzi or Bardi chapels of the Giotto, we would also be going to the Bargello, but not to look at the paintings in the Bargello, but at the door knockers and the locks and that kind of thing, and, the, and, yeah. the, and, the, and the, those objects. Up, you bring up so, my very point, that yeah. I, as an artist, you know, yeah. um, I didn't grow up in America. I grew up in, um, in Quebec, in Montreal. And life was much uh, juicier in a certain way. The butter was real, the bread was real, my family, they talked about what they had eaten yesterday, what they were going to eat today, and what they would eat tomorrow. And it was very, it had a reality to it, a, a real reality. And when I'm in Italy, or an aspect of France as well, I can sense the same thing, that they were, they were the, the images they're making are a living. They're part of their life, and of course, they're the journals of Pontormo talk the way my family talked, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and they're very concerned with uh, food as medicine, in a way, that to, to eat healthily was to live longer. And um, I think it's very important to talk about this in relation to the images. I also, speaking a little bit out of turn, I, I think that Richter, when he built his complex of buildings, 
was I think we should stick to the Renaissance and come well, back I to did, but it is. I'm talking about Warburg. <laughs> you know, I think it it was uh, Warburg associated the the buildings that he built. The same idea as the library. Well, if, if I may in, in intervene, I mean, we, you, you were mentioning uh, Warburg's notion of the Renaissance, which is quite outdated now, or not, not followed by, by current scholarship. And indeed, if you, if you study the Renaissance, you realize that so many texts written in the Middle Ages were still published, were still active. If you look uh, at, the, at the reception of classical art, one way of looking at the ways in which Renaissance artists receive classical, classical art is to look at the demand of religious art, which demand increasing realism, increasing physical presence to convey the image of a suffering God, etc. So basically, what, is, what does remain of Warburg's thought on the Renaissance for the, for the present? I can say something. Um, for the present, um, I live in Paris, and so in Paris now, there is a wonderful exhibition about Renaissance, yeah. uh, which comes from Florence. Mm. So here, there is everything I, I love. Donatello, it's wonderful. Really wonderful. Um, um, kind of... Uh, it, um, focus is uh, done about the model mm -hmm. of Roman Republic yes. in uh, 15th century uh, Florentine Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And it is shown through some manuscripts and... Uh, okay, mm -hmm. good. Perfect. Yeah, At the end, there is the so-called Niccolo Dauzano now attributed to Desiderio da Settignano and not Donatello. Uh, I mentioned that nowhere in the very big catalog, in the discourse of curators, nowhere there is a mention to what Warburg introduced in 1902 namely the famous Botti, the ex-votos of uh, La Santissima Annunciata, which were uh, a kind of artisanal, religious, vulgar, kitsch, awful, in the genre of Madame Tussauds. But it was, it was a hyper-realism, the kind of which um, Alessandro Paronchi spoke about, about the realism of the first Renaissance, uh, already in 14th century. So Warburg introduced the fact that confronting the actual images which you can see in museums, which were kept through the curatorial work of, of Vasari and uh, the museum, etc. So you have masterpieces. But all these objects, ex votos, were destroyed in 17th century. And the, 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 the big work of Warburg was to interpret the actual objects, which are masterpieces, along with vulgar objects, which all disappeared. This is a, a masterpiece of anthropology. But now, 
in a big exhibition on uh, Renaissance, there is no mention of this, despite the fact that to understand the Niccolo da Uzzano, you need these ex voto, which themselves are linked to the famous Roman Republican model of the Imagines. So there is uh, something which does not I'm work sure today. These, these no? exhibitions are just the entertainment industry. They have nothing to do with uh, uh, yes, intellectuality. But That's okay. all. You're just making so a comment. I, I just make comment. a because, but there is a very big catalogue of uh, yeah. specialists yeah. and so on. That's uh, just, that's just uh, but this is a critical heritage. point, I would say. But why Warburg today? But to speak again about the ex votos. There's another part of the exhibition which I saw in Florence, which also involves making, but also this question of transmission of images. Not only the images where they're repeated, a memorable room in which there are all the terracottas and casts. So that um, suggesting how, uh, and very interesting also from the point of view of art and making things, how the same image is repeated X number of times. And that, I think, is something that definitely, um, you know, we're much more conscious of that as a result, perhaps, of a long tradition. But again, not, not going back to this whole why this was done in the first place. Yeah. However, uh, seeing, seeing the Renaissance as Warburg might have done, that is to say, for the transmission of images in a different way, in terms of materiality, in terms of making, which is what you might have been interested in. Which he, as uh, Christopher says, wasn't uh, so uh, wasn't so concerned concerned with the question of um, um, making things. I mean, actually, going back to your point, that is also, of course, how we are much different. I mean, you know, now than than then. Uh, one thing uh, quite right about uh, making objects in the past, sculpture, painting, whatever, took a long time. You know, you had to grind your pigments. Still does. <laughs> you, you, well, you, 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 well, particularly if you had to grind your pigments. And you had to I, find I mean, your pigments. I mean through the grinding And, and pigments, you had to find your pigments. And you had to mix them with the, with, yeah. with the medium, et cetera. And you had to prime your canvas and all that. Or if you had to make paper, and that would have done. You know, making also, paper and preparing paper and making the, the, the drawing implements or whatever. That's why drawing, old, yeah. old drawings are small. They couldn't make big paper. Well, paper's valuable too, yeah. yeah. The, the, but uh, so, I mean, there's all, uh, all of that, which is also uh, 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 an experience that we don't have, although he would have had it and been more related to it. The, 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 the shocking thing now, of course, is, uh, as we're aware, is the older crafts have gone, or the number of places that are gone, so that it's increasingly difficult even to repair objects. Now, I was talking with somebody who was a restorer. There are very few places that even exist, even a place like Florence, where, you know, you, where, if anyone remembers what it was like in the past, where, you know, you can, where furniture's made, where a frame is repaired or can be made relatively speaking to what you know when it would have experienced 100 years ago or 150 years ago it's so interesting so, in, in my studio when yeah. i hire assistants it used to be that they knew how to stretch canvas and yeah. gesso and that. now they know how to make websites and things just to elaborate on what you're saying yeah. but when i started wandering around florence was uh, for the first time was in 66 
and a lot of the old Florence was still there. There was a place where you could buy pigment, ground pigment, and it didn't, it burned down in about 1974, but for a long time I bought pigments there, and, and there were, there was a wonderful color, I mean this is an aside, it's a renaissance color uh, called capuchin yellow, which is really pink was made by the Capuchin monks. It's just a, an, an incredible material. But when I started wandering around, I, did, I actually did uh, a mural that's in um, a, a Bonfresco that's in um, Maine. And it's based on the virtues of good government. And so I was studying Siena up and down and spending a lot of time there. And mm. I was interested in the fact that yeah. the Banco de Siena was mm. the first bank in mm. Europe and that that tradition had actually, in a certain way, come from Egypt via Greece. I mean, that's the, I'm, I'm making a lot of shortcuts to Italy when, when the Medici brought the Greeks over to teach the Italians how to paint because they had lost that skill uh, through invasions. And uh, all of that I find, you know, that, that whole legacy of what happened in Egypt and how it went to Greece and how it was brought to Florence and how those images that we all adore <laughs> came about. That way. Well, I, if I may, I think that's an extremely important comment and coupled it with, 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 with Tom's remarks about uh, transmission and, uh, and, and George on the transversals and the traveling images and so forth. We are probably all arrived at a sense today of a, a kind of permanent multiplex flow of ideas and images that, that knit culture together. And therefore, we would probably, I would think, be willing to relativize the epical significance of the Renaissance. That is to say, uh, maybe be unwilling to join Warburg in his celebration of the Renaissance as a, as, as a fundamental emancipation, right? Because the ex votos, after all, continue straight through from antiquity, straight through the Middle Ages to the Renaissance. The, the forms that you were referring to travel straight through. They're constantly being imported and transmitted and translated and so forth. So then why privilege the Renaissance as he did? And that would be, that, that would be the question I would ask again. I mean, who, who's willing to allow that um, uh, perception of an elective affinity that the Renaissance felt with antiquity, classical antiquity, and you want us to talk about the classical, and I think we should, because um, uh, who's willing to let that elective affinity between the Renaissance, that is to say European modernity, and classical antiquity be a guiding principle, and use a rhetoric of emancipation, liberation, and so forth, the human will, human freedom, and so forth. It seems very important, because not everybody's willing to give up on the idea of human freedom. Psychoanalysis is about freedom, it seems to me. Well, I'd like to sort of <laughs> dive in. <laughs> uh, I think that the idea of the Renaissance is, is an art historian's idea. Actually, I think what artists were living was a continuum from Egypt through Greece mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to through Rome, through classical Rome. Uh, I mean, I'm reading a book forever, which is because it's very hard to read, uh, called 
it's, a, it's about drawing, and it's about a different kind of perspective than uh, Renaissance perspective. Mm -hmm. And so uh, clearly, there was a whole different field of perspective going on before three-point perspective and afterwards. So, and this is coming from Egypt, Greece, mm -hmm. Renaissance. So I think, you know, the idea that, you know, these bunch of Englishmen suddenly discovered the Renaissance, you know, is because probably England was really dull. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and here is this juicy painting going on, and especially when you—I mean, the whole idea of calling the mannerist mannerist, as right, as right. Snide remark, it's sort of like the Big right. Bang kind of remark—is you know, they were shocked by the homosexuality in in mannerist painting, which you know is a very English thing to be shocked at, since. There was a high frequency of homosexuality in England. <laughs> well, there's something highly suspect about the whole late uh, 19th century cult of the Renaissance centered in Florence. Yes. And you know, you yes. might ask, what is the, isn't yes. it significant that Warburg as an intellectual gravitates towards Florence in the 1890s and not Paris, right? Paris is, was the center of the intellectual world for, for any, for any yes. intellectual. And, 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 and Warburg was Parisophobic. Right? Instead, it's Florence, where he's in the milieu of Walter Pater, Berenson, and he wasn't friends with Berenson, but and, and, and many, many others, who were all taking refuge from modernity, basically. Taking refuge from technological modernity, taking refuge from the vulgarity of America, taking refuge from also German romanticism, I believe. So there's a triple threat there. I'm talking about Henry James and Sargent and, uh, and all the rest of it. So the, they, yes, they invented the Renaissance. Yeah. But I don't think artists thought of it that way. At the time, uh, you no. know, I think you know they yeah. were living right. art and right. living. I mean, artists, no matter if, whether they're, they're using videotapes, they're, right. they're right. involved in art history right. and they know what's going on and they're you know absorbing it. Some are more knowledgeable than others, but it's always it's always a thread through everything. Perhaps there's one problem with, with Renaissance artists when you read the artistic literature of the Renaissance is that they never talk about making and they really conceal the aspect of making and technique from, from the literature that they produce. Leonardo is talk. always talking about making. But Leonardo is never published, on, is not published until the, the late 17th century and these are his personal notes. If you look at the published literature, it's about invention, disposition, oh, by nice whom? subject. By whom? By Alberti, by Paolo Pino, oh. by uh, Lodovico well, Dolce. Alberti is talking about perspective. He's talking about perspective, but that's an intellectual thing. But that's a mathematic, that's yeah. optics perspective. And in fact, what, what strikes me in that discussion, one of the contribution of Warburg's precise... Euclidean perspective was optics. Renaissance it is also connected, is but it is connected mm. to optics. If you read the beginning of De La Pittura, Alberti explained the visual rays as something haptic that goes from the eye and it's based on... But anyway, that, that, that's an academic discussion. What I just would like to emphasize is that it seems that Warburg doesn't take for granted the message of Renaissance artists who are responsible for that distinction between so-called decorative art and fine yeah. arts. And precisely, that, that's one of the use of, of our work to take the image as a matter, as, well, neither as a body nor as a mind, but I'm not quite sure as what, but certainly as something that travels across media and that should be studied mm -hmm. through its uh, traveling across media. Mm -hmm. yeah.
It recalls me a discussion about the, the question why Donatello um, didn't have a um, uh, foundry studio of its, his own. Uh, Ghiberti had. Donatello, no. So you can interpret, in, and, and especially the one of the mas Donatello's masterpiece, the Judith, is made by various studios of foundry, f uh, bronze, fa how do you say? Foundry. Found, foundry. So you can interpret in two different manners. You can say Donatello is <coughs> Now, a Renaissance artist, in this sense, he is an intellectual. So he does not uh, touch the bronze foundry, the material, and he lives, he conceives, and uh, the artisans are his uh, assistants, and uh, he's the intellectual artist. Why not? It's, it's a good interpretation, but insufficient. The other interpretation, to complete this one, is to say he was so interested in the material, because if you look at the Judith, mm -hmm. the face is completely class classicist, mm -hmm. but there is a, a, a mold, there is elements of uh, uh, Gothic, there is elements of hyperrealism. They're in the same sculpture. So he needed various ways to deal with the material. So this is <coughs> wonderful. This is the Renaissance for me. Mm. And you by think the that way. That has to do with money then, just yes. as it is now. Is it the yeah, person yeah, with yes, their more yes. money had their money, own boundaries? Yes, money, money. And, money, money, money and space. I mean, because if you think yeah, about uh, money and space, yeah, money, money and space. Because if you think about what was happening in the in the 16th century, uh, some people had foundries in their own studio, <laughs> and, and others, and, and yes, others yes. shipped them out. And, but uh, and money is not a yeah. sufficient <laughs> explanation. No, well, money, okay. But if you look at Donatello's in general, space, it's not so by chance that in the diachrony, <coughs> the differences space. of style, you find the same in the single Judith. So it's not only mm, that's a question true. of money. That's oh, true. money, money. <laughs> can, but, I, uh, yeah. can I say something about the classical? I don't know whether this. How, how this will strike you, but how would it change things if, if I made the proposition and, and you agreed with this, the Warburg scholars agreed with this, that Warburg didn't actually know much about classical antiquity, that his classical antiquity for him was a known, a known quantity, a fixed quantity. He knew what every cultivated person know, knows. I'm not sure he knew much more about classical antiquity than, say, Freud did. And it would, it, I think it would be instructive to compare their images of antiquity. That essentially, his, he was able to construct the system of world psychohistory of art that he did because antiquity remained a stable quantity. He didn't go too deeply into it. He, knew, he used only cliched images. I would say that for Warburg, cla cla classic art, classic, was the contrary that classic was for Winkelmann. For Winkelmann, classic was a norm. The normativity. <coughs> For Warburg, <coughs> classic 
meant a way of instability. Classic means instability for him. Th this is the instability of uh, Greek tragic. You mean for Warburg? For Warburg, Warburg. Huh? I, I mistake? Oh, said oh sorry, so sorry. For Warburg, for Warburg it's, it's an instability. Mm -hmm. So, um, once away, once again, it's about what do you do with the past. It's not about uh, he knew better. Uh, I agree with you. It's, for him, classic is, uh, is a kind of matrix. It's a matrix. If, if I may just bring, so there's another element of matrix, which is in the classification of the library. And mm. it begins with primitive art, and then it's followed by prehistoric art, and then classical art. So there's this sense that primitive art, even if it's something made in Australia in the 19th century, should be put in a section mm -hmm. before the historical section, which are arranged chronologically rather than alphabetically. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. You, you, you're saying that, I mean, this is the doctrine of survival, like the British folklorists, right, whom he was very influenced by, that, that, that modern folkloric customs in rural England counted as archaic art, or yeah. archaic customs, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Um, true. Yeah. It might not be correct, but that's certainly right. a, a right. starting point. Right. That right. makes classification of knowledge, so it, it right. indeed has right. some... And yet that... that notion is overlaid upon, a, a, in fact, a rather conventional bourgeois conception of what classical art was, which included all the, 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 the agitated and yes. tragic figures. Nietzsche, Nietzsche. Yeah, but they're also in Winkelmann's canon. I mean, the, you know, the Lachlan is yes, key yes, for, yes. For, for Warburg, right? It's right in the 1905 Dürer essay. He ends it by talking about the Lachlan. And the Maynads and, the, and, the, and, and all of these figures, they're, they're all in Winkelmann's canon. It's not as if he's expanding the canon of ancient art. He's just flipping through uh, illustrated books about ancient art and picking the images he likes, which happens to be the agitated ones. But, but there is a very thorough, so to speak, reception of antiquity in the 19th century. If you look at Flaubert, Salambo, yeah, and yeah. the temptation of Saint Anthony, it's not at all a calm and harmonious Antiquity, on the contrary, it's a delirium mm -hmm. of um, mm -hmm. emotion, color, violence, mm -hmm. blood, but I mean, everything. In, really. in Donatello, it is like in Flaubert, it is completely chaotic. Too. <laughs> this I'd is the like point. I'd like to throw a little bit of a wrench into what you're saying. <laughs> uh, that's my role here. <laughs> uh, I think the way in which museums to this day categorize so-called primitive art is they don't quite know what to do with it. And right. since you know, we are the white imperialists, right. I, you know, and we know everything, right. how, why are these funny yellow people, black people, red people making work that you can recognize as art? I mean, the Metropolitan is put together that way, and it sounds like the Warburg Museum was put together that way, too. I mean, there's no sense of equality between uh, different kinds of people. None. No, yeah, Where art is concerned. Yeah. That's th there. There is a point that touches on to the whole problem of an also an older idea of anthropology, yeah. which may be one of the reasons, of course, why Warburg has regained some interest, because it supposedly opens on to anthropology. But <coughs> as uh, we're becoming increasingly sensitive, the notion that uh, the others are those who don't have history. But it's, uh, you know. 
they do have history. Yeah, of course. Of course, but what I'm saying is that that older anthropological idea that ethnology or ethnography was a study of other peoples, because those people showed us what we were like when we were in the past. And therefore, history has stopped in those parts of the world where supposedly uh, progress has not come. In other words, we don't have machines or whatever it might be. But it's always artists that would pick up so-called primitive art, like Picasso, yeah. and, and treat it as contemporary art. And I, I, wonder, I wonder if that's another, actually a sort of a problem behind some of the assumptions of, of Warburg's uh, work. You know, and, yes, and, I think so. And going yeah. to, going yeah. to New Mexico and so forth. Um, but, um, and, and, uh, and actually brings up a question I wanted to ask uh, to this group. Um, because um, uh, one of the ways in which I would have answered, but it's the question of why Warburgs of generally of interest, but I'll bring it back to the Renaissance question and relate it to what we were <coughs> talking about a minute ago, is uh, that, as you said, he's gnomic. It's been said that his writing is enigmatic. You could say that it was vatic, that it's prophetic, and so forth. It's like Benjamin. You can read a lot into it. You can read what you want. But um, I wonder if there aren't some other things that can be said about that, about why this is um, uh, attractive now, that is to say, uh, yeah. Um, and uh, um, if uh, there is uh, this kind of uh, t uh, tension, that is to say, the idea of how there's an underlying presence which is always there and something else. Uh, I, I, in terms of the Renaissance, too, the assumption, and what does it mean, therefore, uh, what, when we have a dual kind of meaning? This relates to both of the things that we've been talking about. Warburg says, on the one hand, um, what did he say? Athens and uh, Arabi always won. Uh, and then, but at the same time, using Athens perhaps in another way, he says that Atenville Eben Imavide Zoikas Alexander Robertson Athens wants wants to be conquered again back from Alexandria again and again. I mean, what does Athens mean in both of these instances? The same. Yeah. It just means lo, lo, logos. Yeah. Reason. Astra. 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 The Astra. So, yeah. um, and Alexandria so, is a, a, a metonym for is Jerusalem, monster. right? But it used to it used to be Jerusalem, but he switched it to Alexandria to orientalize <laughs> in a yes. non-Jewish way. Yeah, um, d but uh, we're thinking of Arabi also being what is always present underneath. Why? Why does it want to be? Why does it? What do you? How do you interpret the vil, the volant, the the wanting? Why, and, and how does that relate to the Renaissance in some sense? Well, that's that will to freedom that w wants to be reconquered from uh, Alexandria, wants to be delivered from the clutches of the Oriental uh, bottle, you know, somaticism and, and drives and so forth, right? I mean, and that's still how he, I mean, we didn't even talk about that, but that's still how he saw things. And w I mean, the Renaissance for, for him was this, you know, this, uh, this, this connection across time back to, you know, back to, uh, to, back to logos, 
overcoming well there were medieval demons mm. as well not perhaps it is also the fact that uh, it is strange in Warburg that when he speaks about uh, archaism primitive archaism Greek archaic it's never Greek archaic art it's always Alexandrian I, I mean Hellenistic, Hellenistic period yes, yeah. always the right. Laocoon style the right. Pergamon uh, you know so it's not archaic at all for uh, history on the point of view of the history of Greek art but for him this is the primitive so Alexandre, Alexandre should mean something with the, this kind of... I think of his no? point is the, the classical... Art. Yes, I think he, he, his point is that classical Greek art Alexandrianized itself yeah. and sort of allowed itself to be contaminated by the Oriental mm -hmm. and that's what unleashed all these kind of Baroque passions which mm -hmm. then needed to be tamed by, by the Renaissance which received them and corrected mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. seems to me that Warburg chose the Renaissance as his focus, his schwerpunkt, or maybe the Renaissance chose Warburg, um, to speak to Chris's point, precisely because it was the period in which the oscillation, both the temporal and spatial oscillation between what he called the phobic legacy and <coughs> the mathematical resulted most clearly in Besonnenheit, in, in, in this prudencia, this um, moment in which um, a kind of clear-eyed wisdom could exist. And therefore, the classical ideal was revivified. But the Renaissance has the double or the meta value that it revivifies that classical ideal once removed and then you put Warburg as twice removed, and so he is able to, as it were, see himself reflected in that Renaissance doubling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which raises the question of where we are now, right? Yes. One step further removed. <laughs> which wing, which, are, are, are and which, which factions among the Warburg um, uh, literature are participating in that specular Regression, regressive process, and which are abandoning it and setting up other beachheads, occupying other beachheads. I would Namely, the neuroscience. Well, I don't want to. No, I think it's more complicated than that. Certainly, the neuro, I would say the neurobiological. I mean, I don't want to label it so much, but this kind of in, that, that aspect of interest in Warburg is not interested in these questions of history. That's all I was saying at the beginning, and it, except in so far as memory is the place. Or other places too, but that's the place mm -hmm. that first mm -hmm. occurs to me. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Thanks. Uh, first of all, a quick comment uh, to George, your um, uh, reference to psychology, which is, I completely agree, a very ambiguous word if you use it. Uh, uh, referring to authors like uh, Wölflin, uh, whose prolegomena to a psychology of architecture uh, were characterized as psychology without psyche. 
because they are very somatological, and this is true for many authors of uh, the Einfühlung theories as well, Hildebrand, Fischer, uh, mm -hmm. authors very well known to, to Warburg. Um, my question uh, refers to your uh, very dense uh, paper of this morning. Um, and particularly on the notion of symptom, which is crucial and central to the paper and to the whole of your reflection, and particularly to the polarity opening-closing. Because if I think of the notion of symptom as used in ordinary language, but also uh, in uh, the discourse of uh, the medical discourse, in therapy, uh, perhaps even in psychotherapy and in psychoanalytical discourse. Uh, symptom uh, is referred to uh, one manifestation of the body, fever, for example, that can have different causes. So the, uh, in the medical semiotics, uh, you see something, an image of the body, the rush, the red, the high temperature, and you have to close the perspective because you have many ideas, many causes, and you need to close the perspective, the optics, until you have found the cause that determines that symptom. On the contrary, if I understand well your position and your hermeneutics of the symptom, uh, leaning on, on Warburg, it seems to me that uh, the use of symptom here is, uh, here is rather the opposite. It's not closing the perspective, closing it uh, on a single meaning. Because if we take a pathos formal, it is symptomatic, but it is a bodily posture, the nymph, the manad, that can be inversed and transformed into a Christian Magdalene, like in Bertoldo di Giovanni, uh -huh. or the serpent that can be a, a, a sign of, of uh, pathology, of evil, and a sign of, of therapy, a pharmacon. So in this second perspective, that seems to me yours and Warburg's perspective, symptom and perhaps even Freud's perspective, symptom is not closing to a single cause, but rather opening up the image to its possible multiple meanings. Um, you know that it is a big question, of course. Um, I, I began uh, on this problem um, long ago um, studying and confronting Charcot's notion of symptoms and Freud's one. It seems to me that the difference between them, one could be said posit positivist and the other, okay, Freud, a new way of... Uh, um, you find the same in uh, art history. The, exactly the same. Uh, I love the, the essay by Ginsburg about the, the clues, the endexical, but he does not recognize this 
battlefield. So perhaps I invent a battlefield, <laughs> or if I am wrong, or he does not recognize there is a fundamental difference. Um, you have fever. The doctor comes and says, uh, influenza. Okay. When you have the name, you have the solution because there are some medicine for influenza. You are in front of a painting from uh, the, uh, uh, some collection in uh, Parma. Your name is Morelli and you say it's, I don't know, Lanfranco. Okay. Uh, the name means the solution. Symptom is an enigma and the name is a solution. You have a series of portraits and through epigraphic analysis you say he is Lorenzo dei Medici, he is the son, the first son, etc. This is a kind of interpretative uh, way uh, linked to this first interpretation of what is a symptom. The second is, of course, in my mind, influenced by a psychoanalysis. I would say, if you, I am not uh, an analysant, but I'm sure that if you go to a psychoanalyst, and one day you say, it's mama, mummy. It's not the end of the interpretive <laughs> <laughs> process. Perhaps it's the beginning. And so is art history. When you recognize a name, an attribution, a signification, iconographic, it's not the end, it's the beginning. This is my view. And I think there is a, a big struggle today w without even, which is not named as such, between the symptom in the first sense, w so to speak, closing, uh, and the opening one, the most uh, Deleuzean, so to speak, most rhizomatic, if you want. Completely. Much like the Deleuzean fold, which may be a single thing, but it opens up. Absolutely. And, and, and displays a, 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 a typhoon of symptoms. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you just opened up a bridge, which I wanted to speak about. I'm, I'm kind of the devil in between. I'm a painter and an art historian. And when I was very young, I studied uh, with, I guess, Warburgian influence uh, art historians like de Tolnai and Witkover, and Panofsky was there, and Oscar Christeller. I wasn't ready for all of them. But what I want to say, it opened up a world for me because it formed a kind of armature or a bridge to inter interdisciplinary worlds, because here I suddenly saw the Renaissance as an integrated culture where we got literature and philosophy and all the different disciplines came together. 
and it, it, it performed amazing kind of mystery for me of how to delve, how to get into the intercesses of all these fields and find a transmission of culture, a kernel of culture. I never took it literally. And of course, we all <coughs> criticized Gombrick for calling uh, primitive art, and later it became tribal art. And of course, there was a lot of prissiness and a lot of problems with, with, um, uh, with what we call tribal art today and archaic art. But it gave me a sense of, of how can culture be contained. It's contained in the word, but it can also be contained in images. So though it's not the way painters will often discuss a painting, it, had, it gave it another dimension. And that dimension um, should be opened up, that dimension of a transmission of a total culture. Um, there are some painters today that attempt that. Uh, Anselm Kiefer, maybe Kentridge, a few who attempt a kind of cultural transmission through imagery. Uh, or, or just what we're talking about now, association, so that there are, there's no such thing as a closed image. It's infinite in its historical <coughs> line and lineage, and we can go back and forth. So it has in it, a, to me, speaking also of Wolflin, who was fascinating. And I, fascinating because he gave words for... Um, uh, for the beginning of exploring a painting, open and closed forms. Of course, he said Baroque, Renaissance, he contrasted everything. We don't have to contrast it as simply, but it is an interesting way of perceiving uh, is there such thing as a more closed culture and a more open culture, or ways of talking about things. So I think this tradition is very important uh, as, again, as a vessel for culture and shouldn't be the dichotomy of artists and art historians and scholars should be opened up in a much freer way. And speaking, well, oh, that's, that's enough. <laughs> I, I don't um, um, object to the basic um, statement by Panofsky that art history is a humanistic discipline. I don't object to this. Uh, this article by Panofsky and uh, uh, artist, uh, scientist genius, it's the title, um, artist savant génie, yes. It was about the hum humanism as a decloisonnement. De how do you say? Decompartmentalization. What? Decompartment. So the, the, in the age of Renaissance, we have a new kind of interdisciplinarity, so to speak. This is wonderful. Okay. Uh, I, am, uh, I was born, to, so to speak, in the structuralist French school. At this time, uh, it was useful to say the uh, humanism is over. I don't agree with this. I agree with a very much revolutionary French writer, whose name is Georges Bataille, who said that we need a more, he says, it's a quotation, we need a more complete humanism. And he meant we need a humanism which includes the inachievement. How do you say? Incompleteness. Incompleteness. What is to say? Of course, we need 
the hypothesis of the unconscious. That's all. You know, That's all. Can I just add, I mean, I very much appreciate what you said uh -huh. because you've in introduced a, a term which has been absent it, from our panel, it should have been here, and that's the concept of a cultural, cultural history or Kulturwissenschaft, as the Germans called it, a, a total study of culture, which um, uh, it, within which Warburg looms very large, and uh, it's an ongoing process and a subject today of much debate about what would be an updating of this of this project that you so well described and experienced. The only objection I would have, and it's a, a little bit parallel to uh, to Georges, and I would invoke not Bataille but Heidegger, who said uh, of the humanists in his letter on humanism, he said the problem with humanism is that its conception of man is not elevated enough. It's this parallel, he and Bataille were contemporaries, and a parallel concept of the, of, an, of the incompleteness of the project. And to that extent, I would object, the only objection I would have is to the very concept of culture. Because the concept of culture, it seems to me, presupposes already an ideal of how it should turn out. That, that, that culture, in fact, is something we haven't achieved and will probably never achieve. Culture is some kind of this total connectedness. So I don't, I don't think that works of art can transmit a culture, or that they can in, in any way kind of deliver a culture to us. They are simply s attempts or a, a, a steps towards some kind of to project called culture. Uh, I meant uh, a historical um, evolution development by the word culture. You know, a, a, a depository of things that have existed. I didn't right. think it closed. And so it's <laughs> Okay, okay, but the word is in, the, in Heidegger's debate with Kassir, and, and Warburg's involved here, because remember Warburg is, you know, Kassir is close to Warburg and identifies his project with Warburg. In Heidegger's debate with Kassir, that's what it comes down to, the, whether culture is, is something we can start with or whether we need to end with it. But that, that wasn't necessarily the line that one had to take because they were also close to Boaz here. Close to, close to Boaz, Boaz, yeah. Boaz here. Uh, anthropology here, I mean in New York, and uh, that, would, that would have been another lie. I mean, culture is the way you would have heard it and understood mm -hmm. here in New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, as, you know, the other side of the anthropology is being developed, which also then enters into the French anthropology and so forth. So it's, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be the line that you're describing as, as in the, what shall we say, the Mandarin view. Of 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 yeah. Uh, just just a short comment. Yeah. Um, many elements that came from this uh, afternoon, very interesting discussion. I think point, uh, or rather, to put it slightly differently, convinced me even more uh, why we still need Freud and perhaps why we need more Warburg. Um, in a way, uh, I think in uh, the present moment, what is really of uh, uh, incredible importance uh, uh, is uh, to focus on uh, images, their power, their pervasive presence in our life. I, th I take this to be even more important than their supposed aesthetic quality uh, because, and uh, there is a trend uh, which uh, keeps going on, um, so to speak, the more or less explicit uh, tendency to sterilize images, uh, to reassert uh, 
the necessity to have a subject and an object to externalize images so that we can contemplate uh, uh, forehanden, so to speak. But uh, the problem is they are simultaneously very much zuhanden. And this zuhandenite of images speaks, in my opinion, also from the very narrow peeping hole uh, that our level of description allows, that of neuroscience. They uh, put us into question. Uh, so they are not just the external object of contemplation, but they look at us. So there is a chiasmatic relationship between uh, the image and the beholder. And to make full sense of that, I think uh, we need uh, approaches uh, like that of uh, Freud and, and Warburg that specifically focus on this aspect that, that needs to be more and more uh, at the center of, uh, of our reflection now. I think. And what do you think about phenomenology? I mean, Freud, uh, but what's about uh, Merleau-Ponty, Winchester? I'm very fond of the late Merleau-Ponty, uh, uh, uh. the visible and the invisible. Mm. And particularly, um, I see uh, there is uh, more and more people are, are, are uh, looking back to Merleau-Ponty um, in film theory, for example. Yeah. In this country, there are people like Vivian Sobchak. Uh, that since maybe 20 years with carnal thought uh, has brought back phenomenology and particularly Merleau-Ponty in the debate of, uh, of film theory. Uh, the publication of his notes for the course, uh, the Collège de France, uh, the word of expression, and I don't remember exactly the, the English title uh, that has been recently published. Mauro Carbone, for example, in Lyon, is working. Uh, and uh, this is perfect for, also for, uh, for guiding our approach uh, to our relationship to images. So I think this uh, uh, reversibility of the relationship between the image and the beholder is something that uh, can be inspired by, by Barbour's approach beside uh, as I said, uh, phenomenology. So, and I, I, I'm, I'm pretty much convinced that the debate on, on images will be more and more uh, uh, focusing on this aspect, also because of the real volatile nature of an aesthetic definition of an image uh, uh, as an artistic one. Everybody seems to be aware of that nowadays. Thank you. Can I say something? Yes. Uh, just a, a, a small point. Uh, reacting to your discourse, um, if we take seriously the lesson of uh, the phenomenological lesson uh, through, uh, I mean, uh, even Binswanger, uh, Erwin Strauss, Merleau-Ponty, Lacan, um, we must say that the the relation, the visual relation is complexified when Lacan said you are looked by I am looked by you ah. the, 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 rela the visual relation the, the, the gaze is also something which is not only frontal it's a complexification of our, our work and I mean 
when we study a work of art, especially, for example, a Renaissance one, we are extremely interested in what happened in the space. What space? The cell, the, 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 the palazzo, what happened? Of course, the painting here, the tapestry, but what happened there? What was the speciality? Uh, to look at is not only to look at one point, I think. Do you agree? Yes. yes. In, in fact, that, that, that makes a very nice foundation for an art history, which I mean, normally art historians tend to try to find out who did what for whom, how much, and when. But then the, the next step is then, with all this, what is looking at us? But that <coughs> certainly doesn't exclude finding out the you know, contract documents. It's fundamental to reconstitute that thing <coughs> that is looking at yes. us of and course. that is not us. Of yeah, what are the conditions in which it were made and what was of happening? Course. Of course. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, all kinds of things uh, that could be said or not about, indeed about, as we were talking earlier, about the speed in which something was made. In other words, if people are traipsing through the space where you're trying to work all the time, that's going to slow you down. Or if there's all kinds of other work going on. And what's happening if they're putting in doors <coughs> or windows where you're trying to paint your, your wall? And that's happening for one reason or another. Or they're trying to conduct services in the very place where you're working and so forth. So all of that kind of thing is also related, which is also some things that we don't necessarily talk about. But in a way, uh, the things that were opened, in a sense, by Warburg in terms of uh, some of the aspects of cultural history in the other sense of what goes on in a, what goes on in a space. Uh, I, yeah, it's interesting. It goes back to images. I was just thinking about the other aspects of things. It may be because we do have, just to go back to Dr. Kivijay's uh, initial comments, it may be because we do have this uh, instrumentarium of uh, imagery that's so great that we talk about images rather than actually objects. Because uh, the, the artifacts are what, whether they're art or not, what we always, you know, what. Artifacts are, the pro are, are what makes culture. I mean, culture consists of artifacts. Now, there, I guess there could be visual artifacts, too. But, the, you know, it's still, there's still things that are man-made. And it's the, it, it's the, whether or not that's going to change the discussion, that is to say that you have images which do not exist in a, in a, materials, in a material way. Uh, Warburg could, I don't think Warburg envisioned that. Because he was still talking about prints carrying the image or whatever, and the photograph carrying the image. But yeah. I'd like to say yeah. a little bit about what you're saying about gaze. Something that interests me very much about Italian Renaissance art in churches uh, is that the way to uh, go into contemporary art, the way French artists made paintings to lives and so on uh, in the 19th century. You, you go right into the picture plane. But with Renaissance art, you do not. The work is hung high, and it looks at you. It's a different gaze. Mm. We can pass to the next okay. question. Um, I'm sorry about my... Uh, <laughs> My name is uh, Safran, Yuri Safran. I'm a professor of architecture at uh, Columbia University. And uh, um, I have run with my students a workshop on uh, how to design 
redesigned the Babu Institute mm. as part of Columbia, imagining that at the time when the, the Institute had to move from Berlin to London, it didn't move to London. Perhaps uh, we now realize that, that London perhaps was not the best choice, mm. considering the fact that the university is prepared to disperse the library. It is threatening. It doesn't it's still threatening. It's still threatening, it threatening by the way. So uh, we decided to uh, design a place for the Babu Institute at Columbia. And so we looked at uh, many aspects, including <coughs> the physical aspect of storing images. For example, the million and a half. I, know, I now know that it takes few cubic meters as a physical form to store it. And the fact that historically there was a connection with Colombia because when Babu was on his way to visit New Mexico, he spent some time with Boaz. Boaz was an anthropologue from Berlin who started the first uh, department of anthropology in American universities. And Boaz invited Babu mm -hmm. to come and speak at Colombia, except that Babu in the meantime died and therefore could not. And this leads me directly to the question of Pandongia. I think it's terribly confusing for everybody, including yourself probably, to mention Lacan <laughs> in the same breath. Because Why? Why? <laughs> nobody would call Lacan Pandologist. Not even Lacan. On the other hand, I think that, uh, that uh, from my point of view, uh, in technological terms, it would be much better to understand Warburg um, in technological terms than any other terms. Precisely, there is an, even there is a, a kind of solid background to that because he was uh, in contact with Ludwig Winkswanger, as we know, Ludwig Winkswanger treated him over many years, and Ludwig Winkswanger, after all, was the first psychiatrists who take phenomenology on board, reading both Husserl and Halleck. And so that should have meant quite a lot, and it seems to me up to this moment that this has not yet filtered through. And perhaps, perhaps one of the reasons it didn't filter through is uh, the authority of uh, Gombrich, because Gombrich famously wrote as the director of the Babu Institute, he wrote a book on uh, Babu in which he more or less dismissed him as a serious art historian. Uh, Gombrich was totally committed to Popperian point of view. And from a Popperian point of view, none of uh, the theses of Above made sense. Above all, empathy didn't make sense and couldn't stand a kind of empirical verification, not at the time of fact of, of God. By now we have the neural neurons that makes the thesis a little bit uh, more appealing to empiricists. Not to me. I mean, I, I wrote a thesis on embody, uh, uh, empathy and embodiment from a theological point of view of 1972, which meant that I had a good basis to approach art from a different point of view, and I was responsible for art in, in the studio for the Goldberg School of Art at a time that it was hardly known. On the other hand, not that I, I dislike 
your interpretation. I like yours very much. <laughs> I think I like it. I like it because it's you, and because it makes Babu into a kind of Parisian intellectual of the last ten years. <laughs> she wasn't. You see, the problem of culture, as Nietzsche already pointed out, is the balance between the external and internal. When the Germans in Berlin built their instant museum and thought that by collecting great objects of art, artifacts, from the high point of Greek culture, they could guarantee their own culture and tradition, obviously they made a big mistake because they believe the possession of these things is in itself guaranteed for some kind of culture. In fact, I made this joke when it was recently uh, restored the Institute Museum. David Chipperfield, the English architect, was responsible for the restoration, which is a masterpiece. But I said to him, you see, the program of this museum was to safeguard certain cultural civilization. Obviously, the destruction of it is a proof of an historical fact that it did not help them to safeguard any culture, any civilization. The same for Freud. Freud had a collection of so-called antique sculptures, quite right? a considerable collection. It turned out that most of this collection was fake. What does it tell us? It tells us that it doesn't matter. That's what it tells us. Because for him, these objects that were fake and they were not genuine, but obviously he didn't have an eye to distinguish between me treated them as authentic works. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Just as it doesn't matter how you write. Goldwig argued in the famous book that the handwriting of Barbo was unreadable. You could not decipher it. So Edgar Wim, in the famously in anonymous review in the TLS, at the time, you know, you could write reviews anonymously. And Edgar Wynne wrote, interesting, on one hand you claim you can't read Warburg handwriting, on the other hand you claim, you, you claim that he's incoherent. So either these claims are incompatible with the other. So I think the secret of Warburg is precisely uh, can be understood best in phenomenological terms, in Sorelian terms, in which, according to which, the photos are not, the image is residual. It's only like letters are not important in themselves. As the Chinese say, when you want to fish a fish, you make a nice roll and a nice something at the end of the thread to capture the fish. But once you cook the fish, the roll and all the rest of no interest. <laughs> um, I just can answer about Paris. <laughs> I mean, Lacan. Okay. Uh, can I answer to the question? Just uh, about. Um, if you think the recourse to Lacan is uh, confusing, perhaps it's because you think that Paris is a territory. 
But Paris is like uh, New York, it's a place of cosmopolitanism. Uh, I want to recall that the French so-called so French thought, French structuralism, I want to recall that Michel Foucault began his work translating carefully Ludwig Bitzwanger. I want to recall that Lacan uh, dedicated a lot of time to translate Martin Heidegger and Freud, of course. And there, are, there were many connections, especially between Lacan and Binswanger, because, as you know, Binswanger died in the 60s, I think, in the, even in the 70s, perhaps. I don't remember. But a great psychoanalyst, French one, whose name is Pierre Fédida, who is not translated into English, I guess, was precisely the man who was able to go between, between Lacan and Binswanger. Fédida was the assistant of Binswanger at Kreuzlingen. So there is no isolation of Lacan Parisianism. There is a link between, uh, a profound link between uh, French philosophy, French structuralism, and German psychiatry. I want to make a distinction between the phenomenology of Meloponti is incompatible with the so-called phenomenology of Heidegger. Heidegger was in principle, and he says so, you know, in contrast, is a, is a, a turning, turning upside down Husserl. Yeah, and Meloponti is much more in the Husserlian yeah, side. Yeah. But contrast, side. contrast that, is dialogue. That, that is we, for example, think, we think, contrast, I'm but sorry, we dialogue. I think the two of you should fight <laughs> this out after the meeting. We can set aside a room for you two to do the discussion. Okay. Two, two quick and really efficient points for your response. Um, following on the idea of uh, students designing a, a Warburg Library at Columbia, long before that, in 1933, even as all the books and artifacts were being packed up, there was a very real possibility, and I invite you to imagine if that had happened where we would be right now, at 17 East 80th Street, the Paul Warburg House was offered as the home of the A.B. Warburg Library. Paul Warburg died in early 1932. Um, he was my great-grandfather. His brother, A.B., had died in 1929, I think. But 33, they're packing up the library. Where can it go? London was originally seen simply as a safe harbor. Felix Warburg, another brother, put up half a million dollars, 1933 dollars, to finance this library. And it was going to happen. And the State Department put sand in the gears. The State Department memo exists saying there was a fear that it could stir anti-Semitism in New York if this German library had come here. So, I, I, so it <laughs> stayed in London where it, where it was parked. So I invite you to imagine the Warburg Library here in New York cross-pollinating with the analytic community that was arriving all through the 30s, assisted in part by A.B. Warburg's niece, Bettina Warburg, who was once someone who 
walked the halls of the New York Psychoanalytic, what would the Warburg Library have been like and what would his influence have been like without Gombrich annihilating the legacy of A.B. Warburg in, and undercutting him in that fascinating way? Um, the other point to consider, and I'm anticipating tomorrow, obviously, but I find it curious that we could talk, talk about, in such a fascinating way, A.B. Warburg's relationship to history and his sense of the past bearing down on us, when you consider that his flight into madness that precipitated this day uh, at Bellevue and the treatment by Binswanger was, in fact, his sense in his intersection of psychosis and brilliance that by delving into antiquities, he had stirred these angry spirits and started World War I. He felt responsible, uh, among other mad thoughts, but he specifically thought that it had to do with his delving into the past. So, would welcome response. Thank you. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, I, will, I want to return, but perhaps it is a program for tomorrow, for the next year, uh, to the question of uh, Vittorio Galese. Uh, it is important because we are here in the psychoanalytic. New York Psychoanalytic Society and Institute, and I think the question was very central. Why we need Freud? Why we need Warburg? And between these two fields of research, it is an intersection. And for me, the intersection today was really the question of the unconscious. What is the place of unconscious in the process of creation and in the process of interpretation of the creative work? Unconscious and drive, we can say. Unconscious and memory, it is the question of the trace and the relation to the time, which is very central in our discussion. A lesson about time and survival après coup, afterwards, I don't know exactly how to translate always après coup. And the question of drive is also pathos formal, and the question of gaze, in the division between gaze and uh, eye. Uh, uh, it is important in Lacan phenomenology, Lacan in discussion again. with Merleau-Ponty <laughs> about the question of the opposition yeah. between gaze and uh, 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 I, and I think it is in this distinction that we have the resistance to the image. It's really central. We were discussing uh, together a few minutes ago. What is? What are the reasons of the resistance today to the image? We are in the civilization of images, a lot of images, the violence of images. But in fact, we are in a moment where it is very difficult to think to images. I propose for perhaps tomorrow that we discuss time and uh, gaze in relation to perhaps the history of, uh, personal history of Warburg also in his uh, own uh, relation to Binswanger. Thank you. 
Okay, so we will stop here and uh, we will show the documentary of uh, Barbara. Just a second. Uh, before, before the film comes, it's been a 